All right, now we're on to our item of business. Let's get to God's Word. So if you have your Bible, if you'll turn to the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 6 today. Mark chapter 6, and if you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras. So if you're visiting or you forgot your Bible or we had a number of visitors in our first service, it was a joy just to meet some folks who, you know, not, not young folks, just different ages who are really seeking the Lord for the first time just wanting to meet God, and the place that you're going to meet the Lord is through the Bible. That's, that's what Jesus teaches us. And so as you, maybe you don't believe the Bible, or like me, you hadn't read it before, but I hope that you'll take an interest, and you can keep these Bibles and read them together. <clears throat> we're going through the Gospel of Mark where we're learning that the disciples were trying to clarify who is Jesus. He wants them to realize, I'm the Son of God, and I'm the Messiah who's going to die for you. But then he was inviting them to, to become believers, to become Christ followers. We call that a commitment to the journey, to say, what does it mean to really be a Christian? You don't go to church and become a Christian because you go to church. You become a Christian when you commit your life to Christ by faith. You become a forgiven follower, and then you become a disciple. And so today, what we're going to learn is that Jesus is going to teach us lessons on ministering to people well, at the same time, we want to learn from miracles in the past. What I mean by that is all of the disciples and followers of Christ had this information. They knew a lot of the teachings and a lot of the stories about Christ, but each of them was led by God to write out their story, how they wanted to frame it. And so sometimes they would put certain miracles in certain situations together, and then they would comment on them, and they would connect them. And so what Mark's doing is he's, He's making a connection between two famous miracles of Jesus that happened back to back. The first one is when Jesus fed 5,000 people. Most people are familiar with that. Yeah, I, I know that story, right? The second one was when Jesus walked on water. But what I want you to see here is that these two stories in Mark are together for a reason. And Mark, as he, as he tells this story, he's going to make a connection from the first one to the second one. But the first one I've called Lessons on Ministering to People. And what I mean by that is that when you become a Christian, from a human standpoint, all of us are born selfish. Children don't naturally usually share. What's mine is mine. We don't naturally think about others' needs and learn to sacrifice and be patient and forgive and so forth. That's something that we learn. But when you become a Christian, it's a whole new dimension because the Lord forgives you of your sins. He changes your heart. And then you begin to realize that he didn't just save me so I would not go to hell. He saved me and kept me here so that I would learn to serve other people, that I would learn to minister. So as Jesus took these 12 guys, they had no idea at the beginning what they were getting into. As he said, follow me, follow me. But what he was gradually teaching them to do is to follow me is to learn how to serve other people, is to learn how to invest in people, is to learn how to minister to people. Now, all of us are in that process, and if you're a Christian, you remember that even what we say is our theme here. How many of you know our mission statement here at the church? We say it all the time. If you don't, it's fine, but if you do, say it with me. We're advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. Advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. A disciple is a follower. And so what we're going to learn today is if you're a follower of Christ, you need to start asking yourself, 
Have I, am I learning to minister to people? If I am ministering to people, what are some things I need to learn from this? We're improving, we're growing. So the first thing I want us to do is look at this story starting in Mark 6 on, in verse 30. It says, the apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. Now they just finished this very busy time of going out and preaching. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. And some of you may have a job like that where it just can get so out of control. You're like, this is crazy. And sometimes you're just like, I'm going to go lock myself in a closet or sneak out the back. So they were just so overwhelmed that Jesus says, we need to take some rest. So it says in verse 32, they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves. So there's all these people around. And I think they were trying to sneak away like you do with the kids. You know, they're watching TV. Let me just go in the other room and just, just relax for a moment. So I think they're trying to sneak away. But notice, as they were sneaking away, it says, the people saw them going, and many recognized them. Wait, that's the healer. That's Jesus. Look, him and his guys are getting in a boat. Where are they going? And they see the little boat slipping out, and they're like, they're watching the direction. They're like, I know where he's going, the next village. So this is almost funny. Jesus is trying to get away with his guys to give him a break. It says, but the people, verse 33, ran there together on foot, from all the cities and got there ahead of them. So it's almost like the Boston Marathon, right? It might have started out with maybe a couple hundred people, but as they went through village and towns, more people joined in, till by the time they get there, we're going to learn that there was probably 15,000 people waiting for Jesus on the shoreline. Now, to give you perspective, this room holds about 500, Okay. So imagine 15,000 people. He's, he's just trying to get a little peace and calm, okay? So verse 34 says, disembarking, they, they moor the ship, he's getting out of the boat. He saw a great multitude. Now, if that was me, I'd be like, oh, brother, right? Turn the ship around, right? But instead, look at Jesus. He felt compassion for them. Well, why? Why, why was he moved in his inner being? Like, I feel bad for these people. Well, why? It says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. What you think about that? What, what does that mean? Left to themselves, the masses of people on planet Earth are like sheep without a shepherd. What kind of a shepherd? What is it that they really need? And then notice what he did. He didn't come along and say, hey, sheep without a shepherd, I'm here to be your shepherd. But what did he do when he saw their need? It says he began to teach them many things. That's really important. Think about that. Jesus sees these people. They're, they're so needy. They've got so many issues. They need a shepherd. But he, now, just imagine. I wonder what he taught them. Well, he wasn't teaching them about hygiene. Now, you know, it's a good idea to wash your hair and brush your teeth. He was teaching them of their spiritual needs. Things like in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor. He was teaching them of the necessity of following him, believing in him, like the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, strive to enter by the narrow way, because the gate is broad that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way. So he's teaching them their greatest need is to hear his words. But as he, as he continues to teach them, the disciples, being very pragmatic, verse 35 says, when it was already quite late, his disciples came up to him and began saying, 
I'll paraphrase. Hey, Jesus, you, you watching your clock here? Kind of like what you do when I'm preaching. Does Pastor Tom even know there's a clock, right? Like, Jesus, you watching the time here? Like, it's, you know, like, maybe we ought to start wrapping it up. Now, they're well-meaning because look what they said to Jesus. The place is desolate. It's already quite late. So why don't you send them away so they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat, you know? <clears throat> it's not like they had these big supermarkets, so this would have been massive for 15,000 people to scatter and walking into, like, Jesus, these people need to eat. But notice the stunning answer of Jesus. Jesus, you need to get them, let them go get something to eat. But he answered said to them, you give them something to eat. There's 15,000 people here, right? And they said to him, should we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? A denarii is like a day's wage. It's like, Lord, should we give them two, you know, almost a, uh, maybe a, almost two-thirds of a year's salary? Like, we, how are we going to do that? And Jesus, now again, Jesus knows everything, but he says to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Which is almost like ridiculous. There's 15,000 people. What do you got? Go look. So they went and they found, they said, well, we have, we have five loaves and two fish. <clears throat> Now, notice that Jesus doesn't say, all right, everybody, sit down. It says, he commanded them all to recline by groups on the green grass. So it's very orderly. In fact, it says they reclined in companies of hundreds and of fifties. Right? Now, now, interestingly, in the Old Testament, Moses, as he led the people in the wilderness, he organized them into orderly groups, down to units of ten like this. So there's probably, in Jesus' mind, there's a background here to the Old Testament people of God, when he fed them manna. But he took the five loaves and two fish, and he looks up to heaven, and he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he kept giving to the disciples to set before them, and they divided up the two fish among them all. So the disciples are just like little ants, just coming back, getting another basket, coming back, and, he just, and it's just spreading, right? Now, don't miss this. It says, they all ate and were satisfied. So it wasn't like a bread tasting. That word means to be like glutted, like this is buffet. This is a buffet word. This is how you feel when you leave a buffet. Like, man, I can't eat another piece of bread. You sure? Right? They were stuffed. But don't miss this. And then they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. Now, from a human standpoint, you go, ain't that something? What a coincidence. 12 disciples. And look, when it all added up, it came out to 12 baskets. Hey, you guys can all take a basket home. Now, the Lord had that all planned out, and we're going to talk about that. So, what do we learn from this? 5,000 men. So add in women and children, maybe 12, 15,000 people. Well, there's several things I just want you to think about. Number one, as you're learning to serve the Lord, all of us need to learn to pace ourselves. Now, each of you has to hear the Spirit of God as He speaks to you. If you're a Christian... One man's medicine is another man's poison, okay? So some of you do not need to pace yourself because you're not doing anything, right? You need to be sternly sometimes challenged and exhorted. The Bible says that we should be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The Bible says we should be steadfast, unmovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. So if you're not doing anything for Christ, then you don't need to pace yourself spiritually you need to change your lifestyle. You need to set aside some of the other things in your life to make time to serve Christ. It's never convenient, okay? 
On the other hand, some of you, and I thank God, are really very busy with your family, your job, but you're still serving. You're, you know, you're going, yeah, it's not convenient to work in the nursery, uh, taking time off to work in vacation Bible school, going on this missions trip, you know, going to a small group, you know, setting up chairs. You're still doing things. So there are times that, that we need to rest. In fact, somebody once said this, if you don't come apart and rest, you'll probably one day just come apart. So at the same time, we're not to retire, right? You never retire from working for Christ. The Bible says your retirement is when you die. Revelation 14 says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, for they might rest from their labors. So ask yourself, am I, am I the, 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 the rabbits that's sitting around sleeping, or am I the busy turtle even though I'm plodding along? So Jesus says, all right, guys, you're really busy. Pace yourself. Some Christians in their zeal just take on more and more. So, but let the Spirit guide you in that. Secondly, prepare to be interrupted. If you're going to serve people, it will not be on a convenient schedule. That's just how it happens. And so oftentimes, we get frustrated with our interruptions. Somebody shared with me something that I never forgot. This was many, many years ago. They said, learn to look at interruptions as opportunities. That can be true of parenting, but it's particularly true as you're trying to serve other people. So Jesus takes the disciples for rest, but suddenly they're interrupted by this crowd. Jesus didn't say, hey, no, this isn't part of the plan. Turn the boat around. My wife and I, years ago, um, when I was pastoring in Texas, we had planned a trip down to South Padre Island. We lived in Dallas. We're going to go down and spend some time at the beach. But on the way down, one of our uh, dear friends from the church, his 17-year-old his brother was killed in a car accident. And so we ended up turning around, coming home, and having to postpone our, our vacation, which was not what we had hoped for. But sometimes, you know, you'll be like, oh, I, I'm going to get my Saturday to myself. Be prepared to be interrupted. Be willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Recognize that people's needs are not always scheduled and so if you, if you free yourself to have that sense like, okay, my kids need me, my, someone might need me, it's just an important way to, to kind of gauge this. But again, with balance. My secretary used to have a, a, a saying on her desk at Karen. It said, lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. So there are times that people will clamor and they want you to help them, and you're like, is this pressing? In Titus 3.14, it says, let your people learn to engage in good deeds and meet pressing needs, okay? There are some things driving by the guy and saying, I'm just gonna pray for him. No, you need to help him now. But there are other things that can wait. But we should just prepare that if I'm gonna be involved serving people, I, I sometimes need to be interrupted. In fact, I, I had a guy share with me after the first service, he said, you know, I was his teacher. So one day this kid came into my class at the end of the day, and I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, it's a busy day, and he's going to ask me for a ride home, and I just didn't want to deal with it. So he probably almost sent him away, but instead, the boy said, mister, he said, I'm really not sure if I'm a Christian. Could you tell me how to become a Christian? So sometimes what appears to be an inconvenience is really an opportunity. So it's worth just remembering that. But third, it's important to realize that God has called us to provide for people's needs with compassion. 
Now, I can't conjure up compassion. Sometimes I'll see a homeless person. I saw one that was so haggard recently. It was distressing, and she, she almost looked like a, a monster. She was so disfigured and so frail. But we can't make ourselves feel compassion. But yet the Lord Jesus, remember it says, he was moved with compassion. Look at verse 34. He felt compassion. So I want to tell you what to do. If you don't feel any compassion for anybody, don't try to make your own compassion. Just ask the Lord Jesus to give you compassion. There's a great song, if you've never listened to it, download this online. It's called Give Me Your Eyes. Lord, give me your eyes. It's a beautiful song about a guy who's just looking at people, and as they're all going by, he says, Lord, just give me your eyes to see people in their needs. As you're walking through the mall, as you're, as you're hearing the news, as you're learning about people's brokenness, sense their needs and then provide for them with compassion. Now, what is that going to look like? How, how do I provide for people's needs with compassion? Well, well, don't forget this, that people's primary need is God's word. Okay, that is incredibly important. The number one thing, hands down, because you can extend their lives, you can give them a heart transplant, you can use an EpiPen, you can use Narcan, you can extend their lives, but if you don't give them the word of God, you're delaying the inevitable because they're going to die and go to hell. People need the word of God. Now, what we have to do is we have to figure out how do we get the word of God to people in a balanced way? And Christians throughout history have always struggled with this. There's two extremes. Some Christians only think people need the word of God. So we're not going to go over to Africa and, and see all these poor people starving on giving us food. No, we're just going to go over there and give them tracts. Hey, here's a Jesus video. Hey, here, here's how to get saved. You wanna, anybody here want to learn about Jesus? These people can't hear the word of God until they fill their bellies. And so... There's that extreme. But the problem is there's a lot of Christian movements now who have swung the pendulum to the other side, and it's all about meeting their physical needs. And somewhere along the line, we're asking the question, what about their spiritual needs? Well, you know, if we start talking about Jesus, that's too exclusive, and then, you know, we can't partner with them and this. People need the word, okay? Your kids need the word of God. Your neighbors need the word of God. Broken people need the word of God. They might not even know it, right? You might go to the doctor and realize you're deficient in some important thing like iron, and you didn't even know it, okay? But we know that man shall not live by bread alone. So as you interact with everybody, they need the word. And if there's a way that you can get the word into their lives, try to do that. Now, do it graciously, I'm not a big proponent of shoving tracks in people's face. I just don't think that works very well in our culture. So conversations, asking people, hey, how would you like to join a Bible study? Or if I bought you a book, would you read it? Or I love that many of you invite your friends to church. That's great, but don't limit it to that. Hey, you should come and hear one of our pastors share the word of God. Don't limit it to that. Think of strategic ways. Like I have the Jesus, I carry the Jesus DVDs. It, you, we can get them for you for free. It has like 14 languages. So you meet a Chinese person, they don't hardly speak any English. You can hand them the Jesus story and they can find their language in there. You can, you can so many different ways. You can recommend blogs, recommend Christian radio. You can give DVDs, Bibles. 
information, but try to get the word of God into people's lives. That's what Jesus did. Saw their need, and he taught them the word. But that's not their only need. Let Jesus use you to meet their other needs, okay? People have emotional needs. They're lonely. They're fearful. They're depressed. They're anxious. Some of them have no concept of how to handle money. They need somebody to show them how. They have physical needs. They're sick. They're struggling in their marriage. They have financial needs. They're poor. They're hungry. They're hurting. And notice that Jesus said, you give them something to eat. He didn't say, hold on, manna's coming down. I'll give them something to eat. So ask yourself, Lord, Jesus, how can you use me to meet some people's needs? You can't help everybody, but who could you help? And what would that look like? John the Baptist, when he was preaching, he said, if you have two robes and someone else has none, give them a robe, right? And so learning to be generous with your time, with your talents, if you're good at, at finances, hey, come alongside. We made that announcement about soccer. A guy came up after the first service. He said, hey, I used to be a soccer coach. I'd love to help with soccer week. Now, dude, that's a week right? You're gonna, you're gonna, he's going to come out for a whole week and be at soccer camp. Some of you, it's so cool. You'll take a week of your vacation and come and vacation Bible school, okay? But ask yourself, Lord, how could you use me to share my stuff, my time, my talents, to meet people's needs? Because many people come to Christ because of this expression of love. Hey, somebody cared about me. Now, I recognize that when you start sharing your stuff, you start wondering, well, well, who's going to take care of me? Don't forget this. When you provide for others, Jesus will provide for you. Like, duh, there was a reason why that passage says they had 12 baskets left over. See, when the Bible says the disciples left everything to follow him, they still had to feed their families, right? And so Jesus was beginning to teach them, seek first the kingdom of God. Don't worry about your food and clothing. These things will be added to you. And there's so many verses in the Bible about that. Jesus said, give and it shall be giving to you. The book of Proverbs uses a, a, a garden illustration. It says, if you water others, you yourself will be watered. Early on, the Lord showed me this in, in, in my own experience as a new and excited Christian I had heard about these missionaries who were having needs at Christmas, and um, somebody gave me $100 for Christmas, and I was like, I want to give this to these missionaries. And so I drove out to the church, and I said to the pastor, Pastor, I want to give this $100. Could you make sure that this specific missionary gets it? And he said, well, Tom, we try to give all the missionaries a gift at Christmas. How about if we give them all a portion of this? And I said, no. I said, I feel like the Lord wants this couple to have that. Could you send it to them? So I get my car happy. You know, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I come home, and my mom says to me, literally, I walk in the door, she says, hey, have you been praying about money? Because I was in Bible school trying to pay my bills. And she says, I said, no, why? And she goes, because our neighbor just came over, and she heard you're in Bible school, and she brought over $100 for you. Wow. Now, don't write to me a letter and say, Pastor Tom, I gave $100 after your sermon, and I didn't get it back. But I think all of us can tell stories of the goodness of the Lord. One time I, I had a car that I wanted to sell, and when some Christians found out, they're like, oh, um, you ought to sell it to so-and-so. And I knew what it was worth. I knew what I could get for it. But so-and-so says, oh, I can only afford this. 
And in my mind, I'm like, well, that's, that's a pretty big gap. That's probably, you know, not going to work. But, but the Lord was, was prompting me to give it. And I'll be honest, I didn't want to, right? I know you do. You're just like, here, take all my stuff. But I, I'm a sinner, right? I don't always give cheerfully. So in this particular situation, it was a little bit of a struggle, right? And the Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. But sometimes, not only should you not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, but make your right hand do something, right? And so... I, I sold this guy a car for a lot less than, than I could have sold it for, right? But literally, when, when, when he was driving away from my house with the car, and I'm watching, I'm watching the car go away, and if it was a testimony, I'd be like, with tears down my eyes, I was like, thank you, Jesus, that I could give it to him. But in my mind, I'm like, man, I'm going to miss that car, right? <laughs> you wouldn't do that, but I did, right? I open up the mailbox to grab the mail, and there's a letter, and right? I open up, it's from my uncle. He's not even a Christian. He says, you know, my, I've been blessed in my stocks, and I just want to share a gift with you, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a holiday, it wasn't anything. So again, just be reminded, not just your stuff, but your time and your needs. You're like, well, who's going to meet my needs? Jesus. But he meets our needs as we begin to go, hey, I got to do something different. I need to get involved in other people's lives. And, and if you can't figure that out, we'll help you. The world is full of broken, needy people. Now, there's a connection here. As soon as Jesus gets done here, he's going to walk on the water. But there's a connection here, so let's not miss this. And that's why when you're reading the Bible, don't just go, oh, I already know this story, because the way each author puts them together and the comments that they make will show us connections. So as soon as he gets done, verse 45 says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. And that's a strong word. Like he's really like, all right, he's pushing them. Let's get going. Get in the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he himself was sending the multitude away. Have you ever tried to get rid of people at your house? You're like, wow, you know, uh, come again when you can't stay so long, Right? Different people have different methods. I used to have a pastor, he would stand up, he'd say, hey, um, why doesn't everyone take a little dessert on their way out, right? So Jesus is like, get me. But, but there's, there's something in the background here. It says, while he himself was sending the people away. I think what was going on here is, in the Gospel of John, a parallel passage to this, it says, when they saw Jesus do this miracle, they tried to make him a king by force. See, in Galilee, they, there were a lot of people that were, they were called zealots. And their idea of the Messiah was to have a coup, to have a revolution, to have a riot. In other words, we would all gather together and we would come from Galilee and we would just go down to Jerusalem and we would attack the Romans. And they literally saw Jesus do this miracle and they're like, come on, Jesus, you can do it. And so he has to forcefully send them away and say, no, you don't understand what you're talking about. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to become a king right now, right? So, but notice next what happens. As he, as he dismisses the crowd, it says in verse 46, after bidding them farewell, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now, Mark only mentions the prayers of Jesus three times in the book. All three times are at night, and all three times are at, a, at some sort of a pressing occasion. Chapter 1, after ministering to all these people, it says he departed while it was early morning and still dark to pray. Here we have him going up to a mountain and praying well into the night till like 3 o'clock in the morning. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14, he's praying in his distress. So I want to make a note here about this, this 
point, and that is this. We won't learn much until we learn to pray. If I had to pick one or two things that are the greatest distress to Christianity in America, this would be one of them. A prayerless Christian faith. Time and again, Christians say, you know, oh, I just, I'm so busy. That's my biggest struggle. I just really, I just don't pray. I don't have time to pray. It doesn't seem to work. I just don't do it. I don't know how, right? And you go, okay, I get that. But it's been 20 years, right? I mean, wives, if, if you ask your husband, are you going to cut the grass? And he goes, well, honey, in my family, my, my dad, we paid somebody to cut the grass. I know we have a lawnmower, but I don't, I don't, I don't know how it works. I really, I'm kind of scared to get cut. You'd be like, okay, well, we just got married, but now we've been married 20 years. You need to learn how to, how to push a lawnmower. And so when it comes to prayer, like I understand, we all struggle, okay? God had to deal with me with some discipline to teach me, Tom, you need prayer. It's not just, oh, you know, I know I'm supposed to do that. So I want you to think about your prayer life and to ask yourself, because all of us, we could certainly improve it. But if, if, if you really have no prayer life, ask yourself, what am I going to do about that? Will another year go by and I'll just be like, well, that's just my weakness? Or will I intentionally begin to lean into that? The Puritans used to say, pray until you pray. Some of you are like, well, that's the thing, Pastor. When I start to pray, my mind is distracted phone rings, before I know it, I fall asleep or whatever. It's like, well, that's the whole point. Satan doesn't want you to learn how to pray. He doesn't want you to discipline yourself to believe God, confess your sins, ask for his help, pray for others significantly. And so he's going to fight you for this. But part of discipleship is asking people, hey, can you help me to learn how to pray? We can put tools in your hands. We'll help you. There's plenty of people who have a vibrant prayer life who can spend time with you and just teach you. Some of you just need to get back to this. But we won't learn much until we learn how to pray. But there's a second thing. We learn what we lack when we panic at our problems. Okay, and you say, well, how do you get that in this passage? Well, notice in verse 47, it says, When it was evening, the boat was in the midst of the sea. He was alone on the land. And seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, now, the word straining there is, is a word that literally means tormented. This is the same word that's used of demons tormenting people. Like these guys are at their wit's end. This is a problem, right? They are, they are in agony. And at the fourth watch of the night, that's at least, that's from three to six in the morning. So Jesus leaves them out there pulling and straining and frustrated until three o'clock in the morning when it says... He came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. Now, when I first read that, I was like, that's just mean, right? Jesus is like, their boat's way over there, and they're going, ah, and Jesus is like, stakes to be you. I'll meet you over there, right? So I, I literally, I looked up this word in Greek because I was like, that doesn't sound right. Why would he intend to deliberately just ignore them? But the word pass by, this word, means to pass by a reference point. In other words, he intended to pass by them close enough so they would notice him. Not that he was like, 
you know, because I, I, I even wondered here if this is where we got the song. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my... Like, don't pass me by, Jesus. But here, he was intensely coming within their purview. They were going to see him. But why would he do that? Well, look what it says. It says, he intends to pass by them so they'll notice him, right? But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. This is the Greek word phantom, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a ghost. And they cried out. They panicked. They all saw him and were frightened. But immediately he spoke with them and said, take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now I want to grant him some leniency here. I get that they panicked, right? I don't think there was any problem there because if a spirit's walking by on the water, you'd be like, ah, right? If I had hair, I'd be standing up. I don't think that was the issue. That wasn't really the, the panic part that was perplexing here. But Mark's going to comment on this, okay? Now notice what Jesus does. He says, take courage, or, or the King James says, be of good cheer. Like we might say, chill, relax, it's me. And it is I is, is, is the Greek term for um, I am, I am. And how often, even this morning, the Lord says to you, don't be afraid. A beautiful testimony this morning, this lady um, who's, who's in recovery shared with me that her daughter called her and said, Mom, Mom, because she's been bringing her daughter here and she's been praying for her, Mom, um, here's a great verse I found, do not be afraid. And her mom, she bought a little necklace that says, do not be afraid. She just got it this week, do not be afraid. And then she hears the word of God this morning. She goes, oh, my word, right? But the Lord still speaks his word to us. Don't be afraid, right? Okay, oh, it's Jesus. But they didn't go, oh, it's Jesus, and chill. But rather, it says, he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped. Now notice, they were greatly astonished. Okay, now there's a problem. They're like, huh, what? Oh, my word, huh. And Jesus isn't going to miss this, and Mark's not going to miss this, okay? So I want you to think about this. Problems that God allows into our lives are purposeful. They're not accidental, okay? God is in charge of the details. Even a sparrow falls to the ground, God notices it, okay? Flat tire, illness, you know, and whatever, whatever, health problems, relational problems, these aren't accidental problems with your kids, your parents, problems at work. God allows problems on purpose, okay? But the Bible calls these testing of our faith. So maybe a kid in school goes, man, my friends are making fun of me. Okay, that's on purpose. God allowed that to happen. He doesn't hate you, but he wanted you to have a problem for a reason, okay? So first of all, problems are like a, they're like a, temperature gauge. Hey, how am I doing in my faith? Well, how did you respond to your problem? The Bible says when we encounter difficult things, it's the testing of our faith, okay? So what we need to learn how to do here is to go, okay, when I encounter a problem, don't panic, but rather do this. We make progress on our journey in the present when we remember what Jesus has done in the past, okay? That's the connection. I love this. Look what Mark says. He's astonished that they're astonished because he's like, hey, the day before, Jesus just fed 5,000 people, right? 
So why are you so totally freaking out right now, even after you realize it's him? Don't you remember what he just did yesterday? And this is convicting because we've all had this happen. God has worked in our past, but we forget. We don't draw on that. And then we, we lose it when some present problem happens. So notice how Mark comments on this. It says, they were greatly astonished. Look at verse 52. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. But their heart was hardened. What does that mean? These are believers, right? What it means is if I'm not paying attention and reflecting on things that God's doing in my life, I'm just like in a rut. I'm just like, duh, duh. I keep banging my head on the same thing. Hey, don't you remember you banged your head there yesterday? So, so what am I supposed to do about this? Because Mark says, here's a connection. What do you see? Jesus fed 5,000, but when they freaked out in the boat, it's because their hearts were hardened. They, they had not learned anything. So what is it that I'm supposed to learn? Well, I'm supposed to, and this is something, and I, I did this this week. Number one, re, remember what Jesus did scripturally. In other words, when you encounter a problem, stop and ask yourself, but wait a minute, how might Jesus help me here? Because I remember what he did. This is why we teach Bible stories, not so we can slam it in, jam it in, children's heads are hollow, cram it in, ram it in, plenty more to follow. But when we teach them, he makes the lame to walk again and cause the blind to see, that, that they're learning, hey, the same Jesus who fed 5,000, who walked on water, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the psalmist said this, remember his deeds of old. So you parents, as you're telling your kids about David and Goliath and about Noah's Ark, make the connection. The same Jesus who did that is here for us. And so if daddy doesn't have a job or, or I'm sick or we're having problems, let's rehearse what he did scripturally. But even more significantly, or at least as significantly, is to think back, what has he done for you personally? I think every Christian could look back and have some markers in their life where they're like, the Lord really answered my prayer. I gave an invitation after the first service and uh, a sister came up to me. She says, I remember the day I went forward at, 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 at an invitation. She goes, my life was transformed. She goes, I don't know what would have happened if I didn't do that. So I, I, I was thinking about, Lord, what were some of the things you've done for me? And I truly believe this. With new converts, the Lord often does very gracious miracles specifically to bolster their faith, to get the game going. So for example, in Galatians, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he goes, why are you walking away from God? Didn't he work miracles among you by faith? Right? So I thought back, as a new Christian, I was, I was at a, a, a time this guy was teaching on making things right, clearing your conscience, much like the 12-step, right, to, to, to make restitution or whatever. And so he said, if you've hurt somebody deeply and God wants you to make things right with them, just tell the Lord you're willing to do that and make plans to do that. And then he said this, what if you don't know where they are? And I was like, wow, because there was a girl that I had hurt deeply. He said, if you don't know where they are, just ask the Lord, Lord, if you want me to apologize, just bring them across my path. I said, Lord, I'll do that. I came walking home the same night. I walk in the door. I'll never forget this. I'm going up the steps, and my mom's on the telephone. She goes, you'll never guess who's on the phone. I hadn't talked to that girl for years. You'll never guess who's on the phone, right, or at least a year. 
wow, right? And then I look back at my son. Some of you know that my son Jordan was addicted to heroin, right? And I look at where he is today. We look at Micah. We look at the things that God has done. I look at my kids down in Arizona not going to church, and I'm going, Jesus, bring them close by for me to disciple them. And I prayed night and day for three years. And now they live three houses away. Now he lost his job. Am I going to panic, right? So remember, think about those touch points. Talk about them to your kids. Rehearse what the Lord has done for you. And if you honestly can't think of anything, then ask the Lord, Lord, just, just strengthen me. Just, just show me your, your, your presence. I'm going to trust you come hell or high water. So as we take this passage, I hope that you'll, you'll learn a couple things today. Number one, that Jesus wants us to minister to people. If you're tired, he'll give you rest. If you're afraid, he'll give you refuge. And it's often because we forget what he did that we're struggling now. And so Jesus loves you. You don't have to wonder about that. If he loves me, why is this happening? You don't have to wonder if he loves you. If he didn't love you, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. So if he loved me that much that he died for me and he forgave me, can he get me through this? Paul said, if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not freely give us all things? And so this morning, come to Jesus and say, Lord, help me. Help me to minister to people. I've been selfish. I've been cynical. I've been too busy or not busy enough. Help me to be interrupted. Help me to take that step. I don't, I don't have much to bring, but, but I'll be your hands and feet. I'll give them something to eat. And then whatever pain and suffering you're experiencing right now, maybe the Lord's just coming alongside and saying, think of what I've already done for you. I, I'm there for you. I've got this. Just trust me and grow your faith. And then maybe you're in a good spot right now. You're you're, you're comfortable in Christ right now, and, but you're going to meet others who are troubled, and you can come alongside and say, hey, let's remember what God's done. God's got this for us. That's why we're in community. So let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Jesus, we meet you at the cross, and we're thankful for what you've done. Lord, thank you that you taught your disciples to minister to others. I know that I'm selfish and I want to be more willing to be interrupted, more willing to sacrifice, more willing to care for others. Thank you for so many of our brothers and sisters who are doing that very thing. Even in parenting, Lord, help us to meet the real needs of our kids. Help us to care. Give us a heart for this lost world. Help us to look with compassion. And Lord, as we encounter Satan's attacks or as we encounter problems or temptations. Help us to learn from our past and trust you. Help us to learn how to pray more and build each other up in faith. I ask that you'll bless your flock this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Very well. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.